Welcome back to another exciting episode of Mr. Cornwell's Corner. Well, good afternoon, class. By the time you're listening to this, I will probably be on my way to Hillgrove High School up in Powder Springs, Georgia. So I hope you're having a good time with the sub. And um, since I can't be there, I decided to do the next best thing and send Mr. Cornwell's corner to class today. So yesterday we finished off our discussion of the War of 1812 with Andrew Jackson, a.k.a. the hero of New Orleans, Old Hickory himself. Um, So we're going to pick up the end of War of 1812 today and go through Monroe's presidency. So basically, after the end of the War of 1812, the Federalist Party ceased to exist. If you remember, the Federalist Party was formed before the Constitution, and those were the people who supported that specific U.S. Constitution back in 1787 and 88. They believed the new U.S. Constitution gave the central government enough power to effectively govern, and they were known as the Federalist Party. Uh, Washington, whether he likes it or not, was the first Federalist president. John Adams was the second Federalist president. Starting with Jefferson, the Anti-Federalist in the 90s called themselves the Democrat Republicans. So starting with Jefferson in the 1800s, he was a Democrat Republican. Madison was a Democrat Republican. And Monroe is a Democrat Republican. Our first two presidents were both Federalist presidents, Washington and Adams. Well, the Federalist Party came out against the War of 1812. Uh, the reason for that is it would hurt the shippers who make up the majority of the Federalist Party. The New England area is dependent heavily on trade, and Great Britain is our largest trading partner at the time. So if you go to war with them, you won't be trading with Great Britain anymore. So this hurts the northern states dramatically when it comes to economics or trade. So the Federalist Party came out before the War of 1812 against war with England. Now, we may not have won the War of 1812, but technically we didn't lose it either. And if you remember, we were so excited by taking on the British twice in 30 years and not losing, losing either war that we were dancing in the streets and singing songs. This is where we get our Star Spangled Banner. So American pride takes off, or nationalism, pride in your country, takes off after the War of 1812. Well, after the War of 1812, it becomes very unpopular to be a Federalist because they oppose the war. War of 1812 hurts the Federalist Party so bad that it basically puts it out of business. So by the time we get to Monroe's second election in 1820, it's the only time in U.S. history where a major party candidate, James Monroe, a Democrat-Republican, basically runs unopposed for president. Now, he had challengers, but no national challenger. In other words, James Monroe is the only one on all the ballots and different regions, different people challenged him, but there was not another political party to challenge Monroe nationally, so he easily wins re-election in 1820 because the Federalist Party ceases to exist. Okay, So let's get to James Monroe. James Monroe was the fifth and final of what we call the founding presidents. That means during the war, he served as a general with George Washington, If you remember the crossing of the Delaware, the very famous portrait or painting, uh, the guy holding the flag was James Monroe. 
And then afterwards, he served in helping create the government for Virginia. And then during the government, he served various positions. Before he was president of the United States, he was Madison's secretary of state. And before he was Madison's secretary of state, if you recall, he was one of two people sent to France to negotiate the Louisiana Purchase under Jefferson. So Monroe has a very long, distinguished career, and he's the last of the founding fathers, but he's kind of the forgotten one. Basically, he's the guy in every room, but doesn't do anything remarkable enough to be remembered, like Madison drafts the Constitution, Jefferson drafts the Declaration, Washington's the first of everything. Um, Monroe is kind of the blandest of the group. So um, when Monroe wins, he is elected in 2000, 2000, I wish. He is elected in 1816 and re-elected in 1820. He chooses not to seek a third term in 1824 out of respect for his good friend George Washington's two-term limit. That means Monroe serves from 1817 to 1825. Uh, Those years are commonly called the era of good feelings. So Monroe's presidency is known as the era of good feelings. The reason for that is really twofold. Politically, after the War of 1812, this is the best, most united the United States has been politically in a very long time. If you remember, before the Constitution went into effect in the 1780s, the Federalists and Anti-Federalists kind of split into different camps. Well, before that, under the Articles, the United States was very divided. Before that was war against England in the 80s and 70s, and before that was the tumultuous time leading to war of the 60s and 70s against Great Britain, And then before that was the French and Indian War. So there's been political disharmony within the United States and the colonies for a very long time. And after this war, since the Federalist Party ceased to exist, there's only one national party, the Democratic Republicans. Politically, this is the most harmonious it's been in U.S. history for a very long time. Hence the era of good feelings. The second reason for the era of good feelings is economically, this is the best times financially in U.S. history up to this point. What do I mean by that? Well, before the war, if you remember back in the old days, the colonies existed to benefit the mother country. So because of the rules of the day, England or Great Britain was the largest trading partner of the colonies. Once the colonies went independence, become the United States of America, England is still our largest trading partner. And then if you remember in the 1800s under Jefferson, early 1800s, they started interfering with American shipping in Europe at the time of the Napoleonic Wars. So that had an impact on United States shipping. And then when you go to war with a country, you no longer trade with them. So that really hurt the United States economically. So what happens during the War of 1812? For the first time, and these are baby steps. Don't think Henry Ford. Don't think Model T is some line. We're nowhere. We're a century before that. But what's forced to happen in the United States for the first time is the United States is not getting most of its stuff that it's buying from England. So therefore, you either have to buy it somewhere else or do what the United States starts to do, make it yourself. So during the Embargo Act of Jefferson and during the War of 1812, the United States starts to manufacture its own goods at a much higher rate than it did previously. This is nowhere near mass production, but these are the first steps towards it. So what that means is after the war is over, we resume trading with Great Britain. We're no longer at war with them. Plus, American manufacturing is the best it's ever been up to that point. 
even though the Embargo Act hurt the economy, the war hurt the economy, after the War of 1812, the economy is doing very well. So if you add it all up politically, economically, it is a good time in U.S. history. Hence, the war, the era of good feelings is known as Monroe's presidency. The other thing Monroe gives us is the doctrine. Monroe's doctrine. you got to know what this is. Uh, this basically becomes the centerpiece of U.S. foreign policy for almost a century, up until World War I. What Monroe does in this speech, uh, he gives a speech to Congress, and part of the speech is known as Monroe's doctrine. What he says in this speech, this part of the speech, is he basically takes his good friend George Washington's policy of neutrality one step further. If you recall, back in 1793, Washington issued the Proclamation of Neutrality, which says we will stay out of European affairs. We won't get involved in European wars. Monroe goes one step further. He says not only will we stay neutral in Europe, Europe will stay neutral in the New World. So he literally draws a line in the ocean, and he's telling Europe, you stay in your hemisphere, and we'll stay in our hemisphere. So he adds something to Washington's policy of neutrality. Now, what's happening? This is 1823 when he gives a speech. Well, if you recall, the United States wins independence from Great Britain in 1783, which was 40 years ago. Well, in the last 40 years, the United States is not the only country in the Western Hemisphere to become independent from Europe. Like Brazil has broken from Portugal. Several of the Caribbean islands, several countries in South America have broken from their European mother countries. And most recently, Mexico has just won independence from Spain. So what's happening in Europe is with all these nations becoming independent or Europe losing their colonies, it's hurting them financially. So there's talk in Europe of forming like a super league of European nations and some of those European nations, a super league, reclaiming some of their old colonies for financial or economic gain. So there's whispers that Europe might start to recolonize, take back some of these old colonies. So what Monroe's really saying is, to Europe, what he's telling them is the United States will not allow any European nation or nations to establish new or take back old colonies in the New World. And when I say the New World, I'm not talking about the United States of America. I'm talking about North America, South America, Central America, and the Caribbean. I'm talking about the entire Western Hemisphere. Today, from Canada all the way down to Argentina and Chile at the bottom. That is a lot of territory all of the Americas, not just the United States of America. So what Monroe is really doing is he's setting the United States up to be the police of the new world, okay? What he's saying is, is if England, France, any European country, like if the Portuguese try to reclaim Brazil, that would be considered an act of war, not just against Brazil, but also against the United States. And he would respond in kind. Monroe's doctrine becomes a centerpiece of foreign policy. Every president from Monroe all the way to Woodrow Wilson in 1917 honors Monroe's doctrine or follows it. Woodrow Wilson breaks it when we enter World War I. We're no longer neutral in Europe. We send Americans to World War I. In fact, Teddy Roosevelt in the early 1900s or 80 years later adds to Monroe's doctrine, but he does not go against it. So Monroe's doctrine is very important. It's a centerpiece of American foreign policy, 
during most of the 19th century. And it's basically Washington's policy of neutrality just taken one step further by James Monroe. Now, what's ironic about this? A couple of things. One, we don't even start calling it Monroe's Doctrine until the 1850s, about 30 years after he gives the speech. The United States in the 1820s is simply too weak of a nation to be taken seriously in Europe. So therefore, when he gives a speech, it doesn't make much of a ripple in Europe. But by the 1850s, the United States has become stronger and more important, and we start referring to Monroe's Doctrine as part of our foreign policy. The second thing about Monroe's Doctrine that is very ironic is it's called Monroe's Doctrine because he gives the speech. He's president of the United States. But in reality, he did not write it. Monroe's Doctrine was largely the handiwork of his Secretary of State, John Quincy Adams, who goes on to be the sixth president of the United States. Okay, So I hope you got something out of today's little message. Sorry I can't ask you questions. Alyssa, can I ask you a question? Yes? All right, can you explain Monroe's Doctrine to the sub? And Alyssa, if you can't do it, ask Logan for help. I think he knows it. And if Logan doesn't know it, God bless us all. Have a great weekend. Enjoy your Friday. And I will see you on Tuesday. No school on Monday. So have a great three-day weekend, and I'll see you Tuesday. Thank you for listening to another exciting episode of Mr. Cornwell's Corner. Be sure to hit that like button, subscribe, and ring that bell so you never miss another episode. See you next time. I am Blaine Jaffe, the voice of the intro and exit for Mr. Cornwell's Corner. Thank you for listening.